This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In the ordinary providence of God, the Lord uses people and means to accomplish His purposes. Heidelberg Catechism 65 says that God the Spirit uses the preaching of the gospel to bring His elect to new life and to true faith in Christ. In the Westminster Confession, we confess that God uses the due use of ordinary means to work within His people. Preaching requires preachers. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul says, How will anyone preach unless they are sent? Bob Godfrey has been preparing men for ministry since 1974. In case your math is as fuzzy as mine, that's 43 years. In 1981, he joined the faculty of Westminster Seminary, California, and since 1993, he has been president of Westminster Seminary, California. This summer, however, that will change, and he joins us to talk about his career and ministry at Westminster Seminary, California. He is a prolific author, and his latest book is Learning to Love the Psalms. This and other faculty volumes is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be with you, despite that really bad paraphrase of Heidelberg Catechism 65. And it's bad because? I just wanted to give you a bad time. You know, I'm on my way out. (laughs) I've got to uh, take what shots I can before I'm gone. Well, the listener won't know this, but many years ago, Bob forced me to memorize Heidelberg Catechism 65 by publicly humiliating me repeatedly in the adult Sunday school class at church. So I do remember that. That's why I'm appalled that we get this uh, paraphrase now late (laughs) in life. But it's a wonderful question and answer and does make make the point that you're making. Yes. So, here we are. This is May, as you and I are talking, and you're coming to the end of 43 years of full-time teaching, ministry, and leadership at Westminster Seminary, California. Less than 90 days to go. I'm counting them (laughs) off. He's marking up on the wall in his office. My wife's making me a paper chain at home so I can tear off one link per day. So you have served here for a long time, and so you are very much a part of this institution, and of course, this institution is very much a part of you. Talk to us about how you got started as a seminary professor, and first of all, what has it been like to spend your ministry, sent here by the church, but to to spend it here at Westminster Seminary? Well, I'm always amazed when I hear people talk about their grand plans for their life. I never had a grand plan for my life. I always sort of took one step at a time, and most of the time was somewhat surprised as each of those steps developed. I went to seminary without a clear notion of what I wanted to do after, and um, basically by the end of seminary decided I'd either go into the pastor or go on to graduate school. And as I thought about that, there was just one graduate school I wanted to go to. So Mary Ellen and I agreed if I got into that graduate school, we'd go. Otherwise, I'd go into the pastorate. I got in, went. And then um, I went to graduate school with the thought I'd like to teach in a seminary, and then Towards the end of the four years of graduate school, I thought, well, maybe, you know, teaching in seminary is not the easiest kind of job to get. I should look around for secular university jobs. And really then, almost out of the blue, I was contacted. It wasn't really out of the blue, but I hadn't seen it coming. I was contacted by Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia about the possibility of teaching there and uh, was offered that job and went and was there seven years and really wanted to 
get back to California if I could. And then in the kind providence of God, Westminster Seminary California was started and I was able to come back. And I really intended to be a teacher for my career. And then really quite surprisingly, I was offered the presidency in 1993. I resisted to some extent, but obviously not very successfully sort of like my presidency in general. Um, <laughs> and, I know you want And here I am. I know that you want to summarize this all and be, <laughs> do, and be done with it, but I want to unpack some of this because I think it's important for people to understand how all this works and what goes into uh, making a seminary where men are being prepared for pastoral ministry. You said just then that you were attracted to the idea of teaching at a seminary. That's sort of interesting because in the modern university, that's not the ordinary track, right? So when you go get a master's degree and a PhD, ordinarily it's intended to sort of send you off to teach in a university. What was it that attracted you to teaching in a seminary? Well, already from undergraduate days, I became very interested in the history of the Reformation and not just in the social and economic side of the history of the Reformation, which has come increasingly to dominate what's taught at secular universities. But I was privileged to be able to study already as an undergraduate with a very distinguished Reformation historian who was committed to the importance of theology for the Reformation. He was himself a Lutheran. So it really sort of played to all of my interests, developed those interests. But I thought teaching the Reformation from the perspective of theology and ideas, as well as the other elements that are important in studying the Reformation, could best be done at a seminary and then could also be used in the preparation of men for the gospel ministry. So you taught in Philadelphia for seven years. Yes. And then there was talk about maybe starting a campus in California. And you had a desire to come back. Walk us through, because, you know, as things happen, there aren't that many people probably anymore who remember exactly what happened in those early days and how this campus came to be. Well, Ed Clowney was president of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He was a man with uh, lots of energy and lots of ideas. And I had gone there in 1974 to teach. I was not a graduate of Westminster in Philadelphia. And so I was kind of an outsider, kind of a newcomer, and was intrigued by its history and by its connections. I was not as plugged into all that Presbyterian history personally because I'd been converted amongst the Dutch Reformed in high school. So I was intrigued to learn about Westminster's connection with Princeton and those elements. Some of the great original faculty were still there when I went to Philly. Cornelius Van Til was there. Paul Woolley was there. Leslie Sloat. Others were there. Uh, John Skilton. So you're connected in a way to the you know very earliest days of Westminster Seminary right through, through those men through those men so you know I really should be stuffed and put in a museum but <laughs> well, um, we, well we, the, I know you're willing yeah, so the, the board has plans but the board we, has plans we were, we were planning on surprising you with that <laughs> uh, so yeah I you know Paul Woolley actually drove me to Princeton and showed me around and uh, oh, talked nice. about uh, historic things and the connections with Westminster Philly. So, yeah, I feel in all sorts of ways uh, connected. Well, as Philadelphia was coming up on 1979, which was going to be its 50th anniversary, Ed Clowney thought we ought to do something special for that. And uh, he came up with this idea of branch campuses to carry the message. And uh, he wanted one in Florida and one in California. 
And in fact, Ed at one point seriously thought that Westminster as a whole should move to California because although Dr. Machen had seen Philadelphia as sort of the mother city of American Presbyterianism and therefore the right place to put the continuation of Princeton, as Dr. Machen saw it, Philadelphia by 1979 was not a center of Presbyterianism anymore. And Ed thought maybe a new beginning would be a good idea. But eventually he decided it wasn't a good idea, but still he wanted a branch campus there. So he started those two campuses. And Philly wanted Florida just to be a sort of third year, more practical option for students to finish their work. But from the beginning, the vision for California was a full-time seminary. But the vision for this campus was a little different, wasn't it, than Philadelphia? In other words, this campus was supposed to have a somewhat different character, not just that it was Californian, but that it was going to have a very specific focus. Right. Whereas Philly had tried to do both pastoral theology and pastoral preparation, it had also always done graduate work and uh, THM, PhD work. And so the vision was that California would be more specifically focused on pastoral preparation. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So I remember talking to Bob Dendalk and Bob Strimple, who said that they intentionally did not have a PhD program. Right. That was part of our agreement with Philly, actually, that we would not do that. And it's not that we're against PhDs, but we really didn't want to lose our focus. I think it's important for the listener to understand that whatever work we do here to write books and articles, and we do that, and that's important, that our most fundamental vocation here, and we do have MA programs, and we're proud of them, and we love those students, and they're valuable. They make a real contribution. And some of them have gone on to do PhD work other places and have done marvelous work. Yeah, and we want people to know that if they want to do a PhD, getting an MA here in historical theology or biblical studies or systematics, you know, that's a great avenue to a PhD, and we have a very good track record there. But 70% of our students are MDiv. Or more, yeah. Or more. And, and historically, that's sort of been the average, and those are men who go on to, you know, seek ordination, typically, we hope, in Presbyterian and Reformed churches, although we send graduates out or they go out to lots of other places and all over the world. Right. And we want our faculty to be available for MDiv students so that uh, students preparing for the ministry can really talk to faculty about concerns they have, about problems they face, and be all the better prepared for that contact with faculty. So here you are in Philadelphia in 1979, and they're talking about doing a campus in California. So Walk us through a little bit of the oral history of how this campus came about. For example, I remember, you know, being here in 84 and uh, talking to Jay Adams about his first trip out here. <laughs> and, and uh, the you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe he'd never driven to California before. But, you know, back in those days, the air in the valley, as you sort of come over on Interstate 40, you look out over the great Los Angeles basin, and there was a great brown cloud hovering over Los Angeles. It's better now. And the air in Escondido is wonderful. Yes. It really is. That's not hype. I mean, yes. you know, this is a, actually a fairly rural area. We're right on the edge of a large, undeveloped area. Especially when we moved here in 1980, it was still quite a rural area. Yes. And so Jay comes up 
you know, he's on the 40 and you look out over the Los Angeles basin and he was pretty shocked at, at what he saw. And so the story I heard was he said, we're not having the seminary in Los Angeles because he had no interest in being in the basin there. Well, and Jay had a very particular vision of what he wanted. He wanted all students to do a year's internship in churches before they came to seminary. And whatever the merits of that idea, theoretically, uh, people figured out that that was just impossible to require of everybody. But then when Ed Clowney very generously offered two of his vice presidents, Bob Dendulk as vice president of administration and development and Bob Strempel as academic vice president, Strempel came out and had the same reaction. Strempel had certain health problems and he said, I can't function with air I can see. <laughs> and uh, so uh, they eventually decided on Escondido. It was partly a kind of I've always thought a kind of Philadelphia decision. You look at a map and you see Escondido and you say, that's kind of between San Diego and L.A. That'd be a good place to be. And in the providence of God, it's been a great place to be, but I think better maybe than they realized at the time they made that decision. Isn't that interesting? And of course, you know, we live in an age where it's relatively simple to get on a jet. You know, it's inexpensive. Everyone does it now. But in 1979, you know, jet travel wasn't highly unusual, but it wasn't the commonplace that it is today. Right. I mean, in 1979, people were still taking Greyhound buses and things. So it was a somewhat different world in transportation. We were not as mobile. People didn't have mobile phones, and it was before the internet. I mean, in some ways, technologically, it was a different world, really. That's right. Absolutely. So California was a somewhat strange, exotic place. I mean, who knew, you know, North County, San Diego in 1979? I mean, there was the Wild Animal Park, and that was it. Some dairies and some avocados and some oranges. Right. And it was understandable that people looked initially at Orange County and Riverside County because there were significantly more Reformed and Presbyterian churches up there, whereas there were significantly fewer in San Diego County. There are a lot of churches here now, but they're really because of seminary graduates that have planted churches here. So did um, Ed approach you, or how is it that you ended up becoming part of the faculty in 1981? Yeah, Bob Strempel really put the faculty together, and uh, from the beginning, he asked if I would be willing to come out, and I said, yeah. So although I only joined the faculty in the second year of teaching, I was intended to come from the beginning. They didn't need a full faculty the first year because uh, you only had first-year students, and so they had me come out in the second year to begin teaching church history. And initially, I taught all the church history. Which is the required lecture courses are ancient church, medieval reformation, and then modern church. Yeah. In those days, it was four courses because medieval and reformation had not been combined. So it was ancient and then medieval and then reformation and then modern. And when you started, you were in an office building a little bit west of here in San Marcos. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it made new faculty a little uncertain as to where to locate because we didn't know for sure where the permanent site of the seminary would be. So, you know, for us, we ended up buying a house that would be close to the church we were going to attend and the Christian school for our kids because we thought we don't want everybody to be commuting. So uh, at least uh, Mariel and the kids would be close to church and school. And we'd have to wait and see where the seminary would actually be located. So what was it like in the early days teaching here? How many students, for example, were we when you were teaching initially in the office building in San Marcos? 
I think there was in the neighborhood of 30 or 40 students. You know, as I say, I came for the year in which we had first and second year students. And, you know, it had a wonderful sense of adventure to it. There's something exciting about a new beginning and a new institution. And the faculty pretty much all had their offices together in one space. So we were close to one another in that way. And uh, we had just, I think, two classrooms that we used to juggle back and forth. So everybody had a sense that this was new. And, you know, it takes a kind of courageous student to join a brand new venture. We had the advantage that we were in those days a branch campus of Philadelphia. So we functioned under their accreditation. It meant from the beginning, our degrees were accredited. So uh, it wasn't the kind of beginning with an institution that wasn't accredited, whose degrees wouldn't really be recognized. So our early students uh, were adventuresome, but they also knew that we were functioning under Philly's umbrella. And the seminary grew relatively rapidly. When I graduated, there were about 75 students, and that was in 87. Mm -hmm. And fall of 84, you moved to the current campus. And since that time, you know, we've grown considerably. We've added a chapel building. We've added a classroom building, and just in case the listener isn't aware, we're in the process of building the single largest project that we've ever done in the history of Westminster Seminary, California. Right. Probably as big as everything else put together. So it's an exciting time here. But the first big decision was the decision that we should go independent of Philadelphia. And that was not made because of any problems or tensions or disagreements between California and Philadelphia. It was just that Philadelphia in those days was a fairly small institution, and it just didn't seem financially sensible to try to administer two schools that were a continent apart, both of them kind of small. And it did mean a lot of commuting, right? Right, because Dendulk and Strimple remained vice presidents initially of both California and Philadelphia. So they had responsibilities on both campuses, and it just became too cumbersome administratively. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. And so you're teaching church history here from 81 to 93. And then in 1993, somehow, you ended up president of the institution. Right. And I know you pretty well, and I don't think you ever expected that to happen. This wasn't something you were angling for. So what happened? 
they just ran out of candidates. <laughs> yeah, it was an, an act of utter desperation. Um, I was actually on the presidential search committee. As you remember, Bob Strumpel was our first president as we were an independent institution. When people say, who's your first president? I'm always inclined to say Ed Clowney because it was his vision. He was the first president while we were connected with Philadelphia. Then when we became independent, Bob Strumpel became president and did just wonderful work in those foundational years to get both our curriculum and our faculty organized. And then when he wanted to go back to full-time teaching, then Bob Dendulk became the president. And Bob announced from his appointment that he was willing to do it for about five years. But uh, it was not something he told the board when they selected him that he planned on doing long term. So about four years in, Bob said, yeah, it was time to start planning for his successor. So a presidential search committee was appointed and I was elected one of the faculty representatives on that committee. And um, Jim Carson was actually the chairman of that committee, and I think chairman of the board of trustees at that time. Wonderful fellow. I just got a nice letter from him. He's still doing well. And he was our dean of students for a number of years as well. Later, yes, that's right. He was a pastor of the Reformed Presbyterian Church up in uh, the northern Los Angeles area, and a great encouragement to us all through our years. So he was chairman of the presidential search committee, and Keith Vanderpool, vice president for development, was also on that committee. And I remember, I guess at the invitation of Jim, Keith chaired an early session of the meeting in which uh, he encouraged us to do brainstorming in the best Dutch tradition of putting together a gross list, which is to say for the uninitiated listener, let's just put every name we can think of as a possible candidate to consider. And Dutch Reformed churches do this when they start looking for a minister. So uh, people were shouting out names, and somebody shouted out my name. And I said, no, don't put my name up there. I don't want (laughs) to be president. You've seen the presidency in action. (laughs) Yeah, I had served, people rightly forget this, but I had served 18 months as dean and was quite convinced from that experience that I did not want to do administration. So uh, somebody shouted out my name, and I said, no, don't put my name on there. And Keith Vanderpool said, nobody gets off the list tonight. And that was the beginning (laughs) of the end for me. So... um, Yeah, that's how it all started, ironically. So your life, you know, as you say, people have these grand plans, and surely your life has taken turns that you didn't expect. I mean, you have a Stanford PhD, you are an outstanding Reformation scholar, but you ended up spending your life really, in a sense, not pursuing your own academic interests, not to say you haven't done that, but most of your life has been given over to helping other people prepare for service. I'm just a wonderful person. (laughs) Well, you know, ministry really is, you know, obviously the first object of service is Christ, but we do also love our neighbors and serve other people. So in a sense, your life has been given over to helping other people do what they're called to do. Well, yeah. I mean, when they offered me the job, I had to think seriously about it. And in the interest of full disclosure, part of what I thought about, I was 47, I think, was my kids are about to go off to college and I can't afford to send them. So a Marxist analysis could say it was just for economic reasons I became president, but it was a factor. And I said to my wife, who's always smarter than I am, you know, if I become president, I won't be able to do much writing. And with brutal sort of Hungarian clarity, she said, well, you haven't done much writing yet anyway. (laughs) Which was only partly true. No, it was pretty true. So, yeah, I mean, there were just all sorts of things that came together that led me to decide to do something I really had never thought about doing and certainly had no ambition to do and was nervous about doing. 
There's no real preparation course for becoming president of an institution. And you have lots of different responsibilities pressing on you simultaneously. Yeah, you know, as I've tried to think of analogies, you know, what is a president like? My initial analogy was sort of a juggler. You know, you constantly have balls you have to keep in the air and you have to keep your eye on all of them and it all so easily falls apart. The other analogy is being a president's a little like conducting a symphony. You know, you don't want a symphony where everyone is a trumpet. You need a variety of gifts or a variety of abilities, and you've got to try to coordinate it all. So I would say one of the gifts I think I brought to the job, and obviously other people would have to weigh in, I think I'm a good listener. I really try to listen to everybody and try to evaluate the different points of view that I'm hearing. And yet I'm also able to make a decision and sleep (laughs) after I've made the decision. I think I'm the kind of person who says, I'm going to make this decision. I have to make this decision. And if it's wrong, we can change it. But it's time to make a decision. So I can both listen and make a decision. And some people find that difficult, one or both of those. One of the things that you have written, and perhaps the thing you've written that's been most influential around here, was actually a speech you gave, and that was your inaugural address. And inaugurals are typically forgotten, right? They're delivered, and the moment is over, and who refers to them? But this has actually become something of a quasi-constitutional document around here, not that it has actual force, but it has guided the seminary. Since... It may just be that you're a historian, so you keep reading these uh, long-forgotten <laughs> historical documents. And if the listener is interested, you can find this inaugural address that uh, Bob gave in 1993. It's published in a collection of essays dedicated to his 65th birthday, and the title of that collection is Always Reformed. And you can find an ebook version of that on Amazon, and in there you'll find this inaugural address appended in the back. What was it you were trying to say in 1993 in this inaugural address about what you hoped the seminary would be and become under your leadership? Well, I entitled it Courageous Calvinism for the 21st Century. We were still seven years away from the 21st century. But from my study of history, both the Reformation as my initial focus, but then also what I had learned about the history of American Christianity by having to teach modern church history here, persuaded me that the great need of Christianity in our time, then and still today, is genuine confessional Calvinism as expressed in the life of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches, and that that ought to be our goal and our objective. There are many other Christian visions and options in America. Numbers of them have some strength, and we can learn from them. But when you look at revivalist Christianity in America and Pentecostal Christianity in America and Anglican Christianity in America, which seem to be the main sources from which a lot of American Protestants draw their inspiration, I thought confessional Reformed Christianity was sort of being left out and undervalued and that if we're going to be a Reformed seminary, we ought to be promoting that tested, true vision that I still think is the most biblical, the most pastorally helpful the best of Christianity. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So your intention for Westminster Seminary, California was, first of all, that it would be biblical, 
and we say for Christ is gospel in his church, but biblical as understood by the Reformed and Presbyterian churches and summarized in those confessional documents, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, and the Westminster Standards, the Confession and the Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism. Exactly. And we don't look to those confessional standards as if they're inerrant in themselves or have ultimate authority in themselves, but we look to them because we believe they were written by some of the best Bible students we've had in the history of the church, and they've been received for centuries by faithful Christians and also the best Bible students in the history of the church as biblical. And there's something slightly presumptuous and arrogant about saying, well, these are nice documents, but actually I think more clearly than they do. Now, they need to always be subjected to evaluation. We need to always go back to the scriptures to ask, are these things true? But I think there needs to be a kind of presumption that the confessions got it right unless there's overwhelming evidence in another direction. And it's not just that they're old, but that they are the church's confession, which is something that you have taught us here, that they're not just, as you've said many times in the hallway in my hearing, these are not just many systematic theologies. Right. So Horton has a system and Burkhoff has a system and Burkauer and Bavink, and they're all great, but— Those are more or less private opinions. Exactly. But the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Confession have a different status. They're not the Word of God, but they are the church's corporate agreement as to what the Word says on these essential issues. Exactly. So that when someone visits one of our churches and says, what do you believe? And we say, we believe the Bible. And that visitor says, well, every church I visit says they believe the Bible. What about the Bible do you believe? We can say to them, Well, here are our confessions. This is what we summarize as the teaching of the Bible. But it's not easy for a school to achieve a confessional identity and then to keep it. Why is that so challenging? Well, I think part of it is that uh, the life of a scholar is usually dedicated to trying to find something new. You're judged in the academy by what new insights you're able to bring to the table. And there's a value to that. And certainly the Princeton-Westminster tradition has greatly served the church by new insights into the Word of God. But I've wanted to be dedicated to the proposition that at the same time we're bringing valuable new insights into the Word of God to play, we are maintaining understanding and preserving the great insights uh, enshrined in our confessional heritage. And then there are some external pressures, right? There is sort of the external academy outside of us and also the broader evangelical world outside of us that wants to sort of smooth off some of the reformed edges to make us feel and fit more like American evangelicalism in some ways. Is that fair? Yes, I've often said I think it's hard to be Reformed in America because the dominant Protestant American religion tends to be very individualistic, whereas Reformed Christianity is very communal and institutional. And Reformed Christianity has a fullness of vision as to what Christ taught and calls us to be, whereas there is a tendency in American evangelicalism to be somewhat minimalistic. And so I try to help students see if you're committed to being Reformed, that's not an easy path to walk in the American scene. When were you ordained? I was ordained, I think, in 1977 or 78 in um, Classus Hackensack of the Christian Reformed Church. And how has ministry changed since you were ordained? I think in churches generally— There has been more push for ministers to be administrators, to be entertainers, to be counselors. Uh, Some of those pushes have valuable sides to them. 
But the danger is that the church begins to forget that the number one thing a minister is called to do is to be a minister of the Word, to be a preacher of the Word, to be a teacher of the Word. Of course, that has tremendous impact for theological education. What you want a minister to do determines what kind of education he ought to have. And uh, if you want him to be someone who can open the Bible and teach the Bible faithfully, responsibly, hopefully interestingly, he needs to study Greek and Hebrew so he can be constantly growing in his own knowledge of the Bible. And that's what we're dedicated to here. That's the kind of minister we're hoping to educate. You began as a full-time educator in 1974. Right. And in 1974, the culture had shifted some. Mr. Murray, I know, struggled with dealing with, you know, young baby boomers in the 1960s, but the professors still had a fair amount of authority in the classroom in 1974. He certainly did when I entered university in 1979. We did what the professor said. Whatever he said was law, and uh, you could take it or leave it, but you had to do what he said or she said. My sense is things have changed pretty dramatically in some ways since that time. What's your sense of how education has changed since 1974? Well, I can remember as a graduate student TAing for Gordon Craig, who was in those days one of the most eminent historians of German history in the country, in the world. And uh, the graduate students used to joke that when Craig would come back from a time in Germany, all of his Prussian tendencies had been enhanced. And uh, he was a fairly ferocious authoritarian figure. And I remember sitting in a lecture hall with about 200 students and Professor Craig walked in and he looked up and there was a student in the middle of his lecture reading daily newspaper. And Craig stopped his lecture and looked at the student and said, if you want to read the newspaper, get out of this class. And the student didn't know quite what to do, so Craig told him what to do. Get out! <laughs> and the student got out. You know, today there would be riots and demonstrations and the professor would be fired. Yeah, there was a day when there was respect for office and a sense of authority in the office. And that carried over to the ministry. There were a lot of people who thought, you know, the minister ought to decide what he ought to preach. The minister ought to know whether the sermon's good or not. And uh, our job is to listen and be as faithful as we can. Those days are long gone in most places. In America, there's a very strong flattening out tendency, an egalitarian tendency that Reformed ministry and Reformed educators have to be aware of and have to confront. Absolutely. So help us as you're taking your leave and entering into retirement and going on to pursue continued intellectual interest in writing. You will be here teaching some, we trust. and I hope so. And you'll have an office on campus and we'll be able to come and, and pester you. I might even be on an office hour sometime in the future. Yes, uh, we expect so. But what would you say to young pastors or would-be pastors or even professors about how to negotiate the future of an increasingly egalitarian culture and still retain your Reformed identity or one's Reformed identity? Well, I think when you find yourself in a countercultural situation, which Christians have done one way or another through the whole history of the church, you have to figure out what are the elements that seem particularly strange and foreign to the dominant culture. And then you have to invest time helping people see, first of all, how our contention that is countercultural is biblical. You have to show people out of the Bible why these things are true. And then you have to just keep teaching and helping people. I think the individualism of our culture 
often translates into people saying, well, you can't tell me how often I have to go to church. You can't discipline me in any sort of way. You can't really even tell me what church is better than another church. That's all up to me to decide. And we have to find in gentle and effective ways to say to people, no, that's not a right way of thinking. You're part of a community in the Church of Jesus Christ. You're part of an institution in the Church of Jesus Christ. And you have to, at times, be willing to submit your proclivities, which are probably sinful, you know, you don't have to say that as the very first thing, but it should be said somewhere along the line. You have to submit your proclivities to the larger judgment of the community because you're part of a community. Last thing, what will you miss most about daily life, full-time life here at Westminster Seminary, California? I think it's the interaction with people, faculty and students, the knowing what people are learning and reading and studying and also the interaction with their lives, their struggles, their joys, their callings from the Lord. Yeah, it's the people particularly that I'll miss. And of course, miss the opportunity to lecture on Amy Semple McPherson and help people see how much we have to learn from Sister. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.